And, uh, you know, I will tell you, it's not the same as a live audience. As the old uh, Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell song says, ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. And I wish you were all here. And we're, we're praying for that day when we'll all be able to come together. But for right now, God has given us this time together. So, uh, again, as Alex said, I want to remind you, we are a church of prayer. And if you missed this earlier, we want to be praying for you. If there's something you want us to be lifting up, and you can reach us two ways. Number one, you can go on our website. That's bereancc.org, B-E-R-E-A-N-C-C.org. And you can go to the menu, and there's a, an area for prayer, prayer chain, and click that. If it's something that's more personal and you want it to be confidential, then you can email us at mail at bereancc.org. So we would love to be praying for you uh, because we believe that we have a Lord that listens to our prayers and intercedes on our behalf. And so as we begin this, uh, this time of getting into God's Word, and by the way, we're going to be in Luke so if you have your Bibles there, you might want to open them up to Luke 18. Uh, you can get there. But um, let's look to the Lord right now in prayer. So would you pray with me? So Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus, blessed Holy Spirit, we are grateful to come together, even if it's virtually, to worship your name. And today uh, we want to hear from you. Today, we want to uh, be drawn to you and hear what you have for our hearts. We thank you that you have met us. Indeed, Heavenly Father, you are a good, good Father. We thank you for how you've undertaken for our sister, Jean Bethillier, and gotten her through her, uh, her minor heart attack, Lord, and we just pray that you'll continue to be healing up her body and uh, her spirits. And Lord, for all of us, we're in a place where um, things are different and you have slowed us down and I pray that you would cause us to get our eyes fixed on you rather than the things of this world to fill those gaps in our hearts and our lives. Um, but we are grateful that we serve a God who has invaded history and who has given us a great eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, Lord Jesus, would you come, send your Holy Spirit to fill me and use me to speak your word. Lord, don't let me say what I ought not say and help me to say what you're causing me to say today. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your words of life. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. All right. Thank you, Brother Alex. As I said, we are going to be in Luke 18. And remember, just last week we got to the end of the story. Jesus has risen from the dead. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father. He's going to return one day, but he lives in each one of those who call upon his name. And so we're looking at Jesus' ministry. So, um, but let's again get back to uh, where we're at, just um, in our own situation, our world situation. You know, the restrictions that many of us have had in place because of these shelter-in-place orders, 
uh, our ability to go to work, to meet with one another, to go places, um, it can be somewhat frustrating and irritating. And I don't want to be insensitive, uh, especially those who have uh, special health needs, who are you know, vulnerable. If you're a cancer patient and you're going through chemo, you've got to face that alone. That's difficult. If you're a senior or a single, maybe you're feeling lonely and isolated. Um, if you're a, a mom or dad home trying to help your kids with, with homeschool, you're trying to help teach math in a way that you never taught before, right? That's frustrating. And perhaps you're just feeling like things are, are just in chaos. You're going stir crazy with everybody at home over all this time. And that's, that's frustrating as well. But sometimes we're just getting crotchety or upset or irritated just because our, our conveniences have been taken away from us. You know, for me, I, Went to the store yesterday and I couldn't find the salsa, the brand that I wanted. So, you know, that frustrated me. But is that really something to get really upset about? And Jesus asked the question, is that my heart that you want me to have? You see, Jesus, who does bring the kingdom of God, and it's not a kingdom that's manifested in buildings, not manifested in programs, not manifested in a political body. Rather, it's manifested in him coming and taking residence and changing the hearts of men and women. Jesus is always going after the heart. And that's what he's going to do today. And so we're going to be in Luke 18 in a conversation between a very earnest young man who wants to know, and this is a great question, what must I do to have eternal life? To have the kingdom of God. But along the way in this conversation, he discovers things about his heart that he didn't know. And things are not what he thought. And maybe we'll discover that as well. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 18. And we'll go through verse 30. So that's Luke 18, verse 18 through verse 30. Let's pick up the action here. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. 
Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers, left home or wife, brothers or sisters, or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. So again, let's pray. Lord Jesus, help me to say what you want me to say in this time. We want to hear the words from you, our good teacher. And it's your name I pray. Amen. So the whole question in this whole section of Luke is who is going to enter the kingdom of God? And the answer is found within the heart. Not having a good heart or a bad heart. Because the scripture shows us that our hearts are deceitful, wicked. No. It's found what our heart is trusting in and what we put our affections on to enter the kingdom of heaven. Earlier in this same chapter, Jesus tells a parable in verses 9 through 14 about a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee who represented kind of the gold standard of spirituality but was a person who believed in his own goodness. A person who believed that he could do what it took to enter the kingdom of God. And he prayed like that to God. While you have a tax collector, a man who knew that he was living a life contrary to that of God and his character and his word. But he was very aware of his sin before a holy God. Was contrite and repentant. And prayed, have mercy on me, a sinner. Literally, he was playing, Lord, I need you to make atonement for me. To make a payment for me, because I cannot. And Jesus says at the end of that parable, he's the one who went away justified, or rightly standing before God. And then in verses 15 and 17 in the same chapter, Jesus has these people who are bringing children and infants to them. And he's blessing them. He's holding them. And his disciples, they say, get away from here. No. Master's time is too important to give time to you children because they were considered insignificant. But Jesus rebukes them. He says, no. Don't keep the children from me because to such belongs the kingdom of God. Not because children are innocent. If you have children, you know that to be true. But because children understand their helplessness, their need for someone greater than themselves to meet them. And so it is with Jesus Christ. And this is what the gospel ordered. We don't look to our own righteousness, but to the righteousness that comes from God. So now we have this ruler coming to Jesus. We don't know what his office was, we just know that he was significant. We know that he was young. You look at the same uh, story in Matthew chapter 19. And we know that he's wealthy from verse 23. And, you know, wealth in that time was, was considered a sign of God's blessing, a sign of God's favor. Was that really true? Because actually what is discovered is it's a heart revealer for this young man especially. Now, he was sincere, he was earnest, he wanted to know. 
he believes that Jesus has something to say. And so he says to him, and again in verse 18, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this becomes a heart-revealing question. And so Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. So interesting thing here. Jesus, first of all, starts out talking about the the nature of goodness. Why do you call me good? Only God is good alone. Now, I think the ruler was just trying to be respectful, saying, hey, I think you got something to say. But Jesus is seeking to draw him in. And Jesus, who is God who is put on flesh, is not denying his deity, but rather he's saying, okay, you're going to get the goodness of God from me. But it may not be what you think, and it may not be what you like. And then number two, Jesus turns to the commandments. And they're all commandments having to do with relationship to how we deal with men and women, how we deal with others around us. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. You should not bear false witness or give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And, you know, this young man eagerly answers, well, all these I've kept since a boy. Right? This young man is devout, he's earnest, he's sincere. And the same story in Mark in response, it says that Jesus loved him. Mark ten twenty one. Jesus looked at him and says, man, I love your enthusiasm, your heart. But like so many in his time, and maybe so many in our time, he thought there was something that he could do to save himself. Something that he was bringing to the table. He believed there was something that he could perform an act. He was not looking for a savior. He was looking for advice, not someone who could atone for his sin. He was looking for an attaboy, an affirmation, hey, you're a good rule keeper. But Jesus, who is God and who is good, and this is interesting, he doesn't go after him in talking about the commandments that he says, I've kept since a boy. He doesn't say, really, I've not committed adultery? So you've never had a problem with lust of taking a woman to bed in your your mind, your heart? Talking about theft? So so you've never cheated one of your, your workers for their wages? Talking about telling the truth. So you've never gilded the lily or kind of shaded something? You've always told the truth? No, Jesus doesn't go there. But he brings to light really a greater command that shines light on his heart. A greater revelation. So look at this in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. 
So do you see it here? The young man was really excited when Jesus talked about keeping the law in relationship to how we treat others. And that is important. Because those around us are made in God's image. And God cares about that. But when Jesus calls him to sell all that he has and give to the poor and follow him, his attitude changes. It's less than zealous. He becomes sad. Because it revealed his heart. It revealed what he valued. It revealed where his security was. It revealed what he trusted in and what he was looking to ultimately for his salvation. Now don't misunderstand me or don't misunderstand Jesus. He's not saying that if you sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow him, that that purchases salvation. Nor is Jesus calling all of his followers to sell all that we have and to follow him. Although he might be calling you to do that. He might be calling you to liquidate your your assets and use it for the kingdom somehow. Only, only you can know that and know whether he's calling you to do that. But again, this is a matter of the heart. What is it that you trust? What is it that you value? So Jesus, this good teacher, when he calls him to sell everything, he can't do it. You see, he has a problem. He has put his stuff in the wrong place in his heart. He has a wrong relationship to it. Now you may say, hey, but pastor, it's his stuff. No. It's the stuff that God gave him. And now God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is asking him to use it for a different purpose than his own pleasure and his own self-preservation. He's unable to love others by allowing himself to be spent for them. More so, he's unable to love and trust God who calls him to sell it. Again, this is a good teacher. God alone who is good, who commands him to do this. So it points out two things. His heart was in the wrong place. And number two, he was unable to save himself. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this story, I say, what if it was me? What if Jesus came to me and asked me to sell all that I have? What if he came to me today and asked me to sell all that I had? How would I respond? Would I be sad? Would I be able to trust him with that? And remember, again, These are Jesus' words. And they're good and they're good for us. See, Jesus is trying to do work in our hearts, in the heart of this young man. Theologian Andre Gaudet, a French theologian from the 18th century, said this. I think it's pretty profound. Think about this. All you are unable to give possesses you. All that you are unable to give possesses you is there something in your life you're going if if jesus called me to give that away i don't know that i could give that away i'm talking about earthly stuff but it challenges me i hope it challenges you 
Well, believe it or not, there is, there's good news in this. <laughs> it's just we have to work through some bad stuff to get there. So, the next thing we have is a heart-revealing statement. Pick it up at verse 24. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Interesting where this conversation goes, right? Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Difficult. Near impossible. Why? Why? Because wealth can have a deceitful impact on our hearts. When Jesus tells the parable of the sower and the seeds, as the seeds grow up, the third seed, which goes along the the thorny ground, You can read about that in Luke chapter 8, verse 14, or even more specifically in Mark chapter 4, verse 9. Jesus talks about how the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the seed and causes it to be unfruitful. There's a deceitfulness in wealth, and it does two things. Number one, it causes us to believe that it's our life. And the more stuff, the more wealth we have, the more life we have. Now, money can buy us a lot of nice things. It can meet a lot of our everyday needs. But here's one of the issues that having wealth or riches does for us that can be a danger. It starts to make us self-sufficient. I can meet my own needs. Why do I need God? And that's how many in our blessed Western culture are operating. I got what I need. Why do I need God? And let me ask you a question. Maybe you've been struggling during this COVID-19 crisis. And maybe you've been thinking, you know, if I just had a little more money, a little more wealth, then I'd be better off through this crisis. Don't let it... convince you that it is your life you know it's interesting when the children of of israel leave egypt the, the exodus they walk out with gold jewels and plunder a lot of riches and they go into the desert you know what's an interesting thing that they discover though you can't eat gold you can't eat diamonds And so God has to provide for them manna from heaven, water from the rock. And that's why God brings them out there to teach them that he is their life. And so at the end of their journey, Moses says these words in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, he humbled you and caused you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord God. He is our life. And our faith needs to be on Him, 
not on wealth and stuff. Second of all, it causes us to love it more than others or to love it more than God. This is what C.S. Lewis would call inordinate affections. They're out of order. And the love of money for the lifestyle it brings, the comfort, the pleasure, the power it provides, it gets in the way. And we stop seeing these resources as something to be used for Christ in his kingdom, but we live for ourselves, for something that is fleeting, for something that is burning up. And it becomes the danger of where money becomes our master. And that's not a good place for the heart to be. Jesus says this earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. If you're blessed with wealth, and frankly, in comparison to most of the world, that's most of us here. If you're blessed with wealth, Jesus is warning us to not let our wealth become a God, become an idol. And he's warning us to not let it become the center of our love and affection. He is our God, and he needs to be our first love. So how do we go about this? Number one, we need to worship God. Then we need to love people. And we need to use or manage things for his kingdom's sake. Worship God, love people, and manage things for his kingdom. So we get back to the story here. The listeners ask, well, who can be saved? Because again... Remember, kind of the first century view of wealth is these are the people that God has favor for. This is the one who God is working in. If if they're not saved, who can be? And this gets back to the original question. What must I do to be saved? And in verse 27, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What can I do to be saved? Nada. Nothing. Zilch. Zippo. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. Again, this eager beaver young man comes and says, Hey, I've been, I've been fulfilling all these commandments. And then when Jesus holds up his wealth to his love for God and obeying him, he fails. And that's true of all of us. But it also points to the hope of the gospel. Because what is impossible with men is possible with God. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus came to do. That he was more than just a good teacher. He is the one who needs to be the object of our faith. Because he is God who put on flesh. He lived this life. He died to pay our penalty for our sin before a holy God. And then he rose from the dead to conquer death that all of us who put our faith in him can have life.
life that will never pass away or fade. So there's nothing we can do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not as a result of anything we can do, that, so that no one can boast. None of us can boast. And then Romans chapter uh, 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Not the power of man, not the power of you know, positive thinking or will, it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First to the Jew, the gospel comes to the Jewish people first, and then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness that is from God has been revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It starts with faith and it ends with faith. Because it is written, just as it is written, the just will live by faith. So there's nothing we can do. We put our faith in Jesus, who is the gospel, the power of God, for the salvation of everyone who believes. Yes, it reveals our spiritual bankruptcy, just like what happened with this young man. But he is the one who saves. He is the one who redeems. He buys us back to himself. He is the one who gives us eternal life, enables us to enter the kingdom of heaven, who gives us his righteousness. So again, it gets back to our hearts. Who we put our faith in, or what we put our faith in, has to be him. And what we have our affections set on. And that has to be him in his kingdom as well. And so this leads to our last point. A heart-revealing reward. Because Jesus' disciples are there listening. And so listen to this, verse 28. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, or them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So Peter, he's going, okay, Jesus, you called us and we left our nets, we left our family, we left our hometown to follow you. We left it all. There's a cost to following Jesus. And no doubt, in following Jesus, there is a reordering of priorities. There's a reordering of loyalty. Jesus said earlier in chapter 14, verses 26 through 27, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is not calling us to hate our family of origin. But he is calling us to reprioritize our loyalty, our lives. They have to be fixed on him and his call in our lives. You know, and this can be very pronounced in a family where 
you know, the rest of your family are not followers of Christ. Think about someone who comes to Christ who lives in a Muslim family or a Buddhist family or even an atheistic family. They feel like they're rejecting the family. They're being disloyal. This can also be very challenging even in a, a family where the others are followers of Jesus Christ. Ministries sometimes call us to relocate, go someplace else. You're not there for holidays, for birthdays. Maybe you're away for years. There's certainly a cost. But let me say this. Believing parents, if your children are called to leave you and serve the Lord someplace else, release them. Do not hold them hostage to your desires. Because they'll never be what God intended if you keep holding on to them. And besides that, there is a blessing here. He says in verse 29, Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive as many times as much in this age and the age to come. Eternal life. When we honor Christ, when we answer his call to follow him, to build his kingdom, and when it causes us to leave our family and we feel the loss, Jesus says, God says, he's going to backfill that loss with his family that he's going to bring around us. That's one of the beautiful things of being a follower of Jesus Christ. You become a part of a full new family. And you receive a blessing from that. And sometimes it's more healthy than our family of origin. But let me just say this from a practical standpoint. I've served the Lord in Santa Barbara, in Chicago, in North Platte, Nebraska, and now in Rochester. And God has never failed even though I've left family, and my wife and I have left family, he has never failed to meet us with the family of God, to come alongside of us, to be family to us. And think about this, especially if you have no family here in Rochester, aside from the family of God. During this COVID-19 epidemic, you have a family you can call on. It's a blessing to be a part of the kingdom of God. God says, look, when you leave your family, I will meet you with my family. But God backfills our earthly, our earthly sacrifices even more into eternity. Look at verse, the end of verse 29. And into the age to come <clears throat> eternal life. So he's giving us, again, an eternal reward. To be face to face with the Lord who came to save us. And people, I'll tell you what, when we're face-to-face with him, and I hope that's true even more so here, well, it's starting here, but we will know the supreme value that he has. And every sacrifice that we have made, we won't regret it. In fact, we might say, boy, I wish I had sacrificed more. But he is worthy. He is worthy. And one of the things I think that God really is doing during this COVID crisis especially in the lives of believers. He's asking us to take stock. 
and look at how we are relating to Him, to our Savior, our Lord, the one who should be our first love. He's asking us, you know, do you love the things of the world more than you love me? And by the way, how's that working out for you? Are you finding that they fail? Are you finding that they leave you wanting? Are we attached to our comfort and our entertainment? And have we lost sight of the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has much greater worth? I think this is a wake-up call for us to repent and to turn back to our first love and to loosen the grip that maybe the world has on our hearts. Jesus would say, what does it profit a man? What does it profit a woman? That if he gains the whole world, yet he forfeits or loses his very soul. Again, this is Jesus speaking to us. Jesus who is our Lord. Jesus who is God. And Jesus who is good. This is good for our souls. And he's going after our hearts right now. And I want to leave you with these last words. This is from Luke chapter 12, verses 33 through 34. (laughs) This is what he's telling his, his followers. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Listen to this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is coming for our hearts. My prayer is that we would treasure him deeply. With our lives, with our affections, even with our stuff. Because ultimately, he is our life. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to have the worship team come and close us. So Lord Jesus, these are challenging words. We don't take them lightly. But again, we ask you to do your work in our our lives, in our hearts. To pare away the things of this earth that we are putting our faith in. To pare away those things in our lives that we're giving our hearts to, that are out of order. Lord Jesus, you alone have the words of life. You alone are life. You have risen from the dead and you want to give us life on this side of heaven. So would you free us to freely give ourselves to you and to your kingdom, knowing that you can backfill even the sacrifices that we make and it will be worth it for the salvation of other men and women, but also because you are a glorious Lord and worth our sacrifice, Lord. So we're grateful for this word, our good teacher, our good God. And it is for our good that you've said these things. I pray that we will take them to heart and live them out. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.